0: Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi refinances federal and private student loans to save its members an average of $316 a month. That's a lot of money. Learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. This show is made possible in part by Lenovo. Lenovo is the solution for transforming the way your company operates through cloud data solutions. Build tomorrow's integrated data center today. Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media, a real company with a funny name. I'm here with Stephen Dubner, who was just asking about Digital Media. I think I've explained it to him. They're the people who make and, and distribute this podcast, so you can hear it for free.
1: I knew that. I was curious about you know in this ecosystem of uh, the of what I've started to think is peak podcast. We're already peak podcast. <laughs> oh
0: man, it's either peak or bubble. Here's this traditional startup entrepreneur answer to any
1: of these questions is, you know, it's early innings. Yeah. Like most typical answers, I find them probably (laughs) mostly garbage. I don't know. But, you know, it's, um, you know, look, I'm the last person in the world to predict the future. I'm, in fact, I'm a devout advocate of not predicting much because it's hard, but uh, it's a really interesting time to be making podcasts. I'll say that as someone who's kind of, honestly, I have kind of converted. I'm no longer at the moment a writer of books for the first time in Fifteen years, I am not actively in the middle. of You are all book. in on audio. Well, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm all. I'm all in at the moment. Pretty close to it. Um, but yeah, um, and it's a lot. Of, I'm having a blast.
0: If someone's listening to this podcast and they don't know who Stephen Dubner is, we should introduce Stephen Dubner. Sure. Stephen Dubner is is one of the co founders of the Freakonomics. Can I call you an empire?
1: You you can okay, deal. I, I would disagree, but yeah, sure. <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs>
0: Started as a book. Yeah. Is now multiple books. Yeah. Podcasts. Uh, podcast. Is, well. There's two podcasts, Well, right, the other one has nothing with? to do with Freakonomics. Is actually,
1: it? I've started, actually I've had four, I'm on my fourth podcast now.
0: Okay. We'll go through that. There's a there's a movie, which you can watch movie, for free yeah. on Netflix. Again, I we, we kind that
1: had our name on it. We didn't make it. Has your movie. name
0: on it? You're in it. I'm going yeah, to count it in, your, in, it. in, your, in your work. Yeah, we
1: didn't make it is what I'm saying. So. And do I, I, there's Twitter. Let's see, we had a, we were very active on our blog back when blogs were podcasts. Yeah. So uh, so that's why it's interesting to be in a right. I do, podcast I, I do is, think
0: that, that metaphor is right. It's yeah. 2005 and everyone has a blog. But, you know,
1: interestingly, there's still a lot of blogs and not as many, and some of them are great. There are still several blogs that I read, if not every day, close and to And some
0: turned out to be businesses or were acquired by other businesses, and I think that's maybe where podcasting goes. If you don't know what Freakonomics is, what's the best way to describe broadly what, what you guys do at Freakonomics, well, you and your co author Stephen So Leather.
1: I do have this wonderful co-author who's also a very good friend, and it's really just good fortune that we got together. I'm a writer by training who fell deeply in, you know, as a journalist, I'd written about a lot of different things. Uh, I'd written a few books. And, you know, um, one of the things I've always loved about journalism in long form, books and magazine pieces, is getting to um, A, go long and B, abandon one topic when you're done with it and go to something and get totally enmeshed. So I'd done religion and sports and a lot of I'd written a lot about entertainment because I I used to play music and I like theater and all that kind of stuff. And then but then about um twelve, thirteen years ago I got really into economics, which was a weird thing to get into, but it wasn't regular economics. It was what we now know as behavioral economics, and it was really the breakthrough of Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, these two guys who should be more famous than they are. They'll be they'll be more famous very soon. Michael Lewis has just written a book called The Undoing Project. Oh, they're the new Michael Lewis book? That's great. They are the new Michael Lewis book, and it's about the friendship and the relationship um, between these two guys. So it's the story itself is good, but the work that they did, and then Amos died tragically quite young in his, I think, 50s. And, but Danny Kahneman went on to become what I think is one of the most important thinkers of this era because he change the way that we think about thinking and how we think about making decisions. And he, although he was a psychologist by training, his work wended its way into uh, economics with the help of a few midwives. And I always loved psychology as a discipline. I almost became a, a psychiatrist or psychologist after I quit being a rock and roller. And then I decided not to, but I always loved it. And then economics, regular classic economics was not all that interesting to me. Um, But the blend of psychology and economics is, to me, a sweet spot. So Freakonomics started off as – was it a book first or was it a magazine uh, that became a book? I was writing a book about what I called then the psychology of money or kind of behavioral economics. This was several years back. And uh, I was actually well into the book and I was asked to write an article for the New York Times magazine where I used to work about a fellow named Steve Levitt at the University of Chicago. Very interesting young economist who had nothing to do with what I was writing about, but I ultimately wrote about him, and that piece turned into the collaboration. And that that first
0: piece you wrote about him was was about what? Uh,
1: The year, you mean, or what was it about
0: literally? Literally the first thing you wrote about Steve Levitt. What what was he doing that that got you attached to him?
1: Um, Honestly, the reason they asked me to write about him was the reason I didn't want to write about him, which is he just won an award, the John Bates Clark Medal, which is a big academic award, but I've I've always learned that writing about someone after they've won an award is a terrible idea, because... They get all awardy on you and like, you know, you want to write about the thing that they're doing now that the world doesn't know about yet, right? Not w- something they won an award for. But fortunately, this was a fairly academic award that nobody really knew about. So he had just done a bunch of interesting research, unconnected, like about all different kinds of things, crack dealing, baby names, real estate sales, collusion among sumo wrestlers, connected by nothing other than, and this is really what free economics is, a kind of worldview that tries to use data and empiricism and common sense and psychological insight to understand and explain the way the world actually works as opposed to the way that our corporate and media and political and societal overlords like to convince us the way the world works. Those
0: overlords. Um, It got us in all kinds of trouble. (laughs) When you mentioned Michael Lewis, the light bulb went off for me because I sort of think of Michael Lewis and the stuff you guys do, and then the work that Malcolm Gladwell has done is all sort of along parallel tracks and similar themes, which is you take uh, complicated ideas, very often about science, or in Michael Lewis's case, finance, you explain them in plain English people, and then you say, here's how everyone thinks these things work. Yeah. But actually, surprisingly, it's the opposite. Or you didn't actually realize it, but this guy off in some weird corner here thought this thing, everyone thought he was wrong, turns out he was right. In Michael Lewis's stories, there's always the guy and he, there's some asymmetry of information and he goes against the grain and he wins a great victory or at least does not get fired. <laughs> um, and you guys have, I think, sort of similar approaches, right? You think this should be this way. Actually, it's this way. And, and very often it's, or it's, in the past it's been controversial,
1: right? I think Sometimes, some of the stuff, yeah. yeah. I good. mean, I really admire Malcolm and Michael. I know both of them. I know Malcolm better because he's in New York. Michael, I actually edited once or twice when I was an editor at the Times Magazine. Michael's a gr- great writer. Malcolm's a beautiful writer. I mean, I see big differences in, between the three of us, but I, I I certainly understand why we look to be a group. I mean, one of the biggest differences I think between what we do and what Malcolm does is, in our books at least, in, Freak, in the Freakonomics books, versus Malcolm. Malcolm will take one idea, beautiful, clean, simple idea, and then find and assemble twenty stories that yes. illustrate different facets With one of one that idea. Line. Right? We're the opposite. We have no idea, no literally no central idea other than like. People respond to incentives, which is a little bit more of a, a theory than an idea, even.
0: And also, not that alone is not really controversial, right? That's true. Kind of the rocks, com- yeah. But economics. then we
1: use that to poke into whatever things that we feel is is interesting and for which there's data. And and especially, you know, uh, we have a strong appetite for talking about in the podcast or writing about things that other people aren't talking about and thinking about, which is. Uh, Which seem harder. I mean, as a journalist, you know, when you when you're learning to be a journalist, it seems so hard to like find the stories that other people aren't finding or to talk about. Right? Because once
0: you write it, and everyone goes, "Oh my god, that's amazing." Of course, in in retrospect, it was obvious. But when you need to pitch it. Exactly. There's someone they say, well, why would people want to read about that it, it, thing that no one wants to read exactly.
1: about? Exactly. The weird thing is, though, journalism. I mean, I've learned this the more, longer I've done it. Is such a pack sport. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's part, and it's the reason I never went into like daily beat journalism. I didn't like it. I didn't like being one of forty people on the courthouse steps. I tried it a few times, or one of fifty people being in the Knicks locker room and yeah, the Yankees or locker the, room, the press conference. It's just not. It wasn't fun. And like, I'm going to have my version of the story that's, you know, two degrees to the left or the right of everybody else. It just wasn't exciting or challenging to me. So I really like finding the un. Harold did, which I think Michael and, uh, and Malcolm both very much do.
0: So you, you don't really riff off current events. I mean, you'll... You... A li- with Freakonomics Radio podcast, a little bit. Given the election we just went through, this will be a week or two out after the election. People are going to be processing it. They'll be processing it for a long time. Do you look at the series of stories written the night of the election, the day after the election, the weeks after the election, and go, oh, there's a bunch of interesting stuff here. We should try to examine what really happened. Or do you say, you know what? There won't be interesting. Uh, there won't be relevant data. Data that we can like parse through for for weeks or months or
1: years. Do you sort of avoid a topic I like think that? Kind of neither. Well, I think more. Maybe this is solipsism, but I think more like yeah, everything that's happening is explained by the kind of stuff that we and other people have been writing about for the past twenty years. Um, you know, first of all, people are bad understanding probability. So when you've got a binary choice, when you've got an underdog, to think that there's no probability that the underdog will win is a pretty absurd, mathematically absurd idea. We've written a lot about the folly of prediction, and we've written a lot about... Uh, What economists call declared preferences versus revealed preferences, you know, what people say and the, and, you know, something specifically about polling. Also, with Freakonomics Radio, we did a few episodes in the last few years about the power of the presidency itself, which I found to be pretty interesting. That
0: one you just replayed recently.
1: Yeah. Then we did another one that we updated. So I, for years, have been kind of just arguing with not a ton of, because this is a hard thing to compile evidence of the typical sort that we use. I've been arguing that the presidency. I've basically been arguing that the president and who the president is and what the president does matters a lot less than people think and that there's partly it's just a misunderstanding of leverage and partly it's this kind of philosophical or almost theological embrace of what Thomas Carlyle used to call the great man theory of history. I don't know if Carlyle called it. that. That's what his theory was. But basically, um, it's weird. The US presidency is a weird position because you've got a lot of juice – in the international uh, right. realm, but not nearly as much in the domestic and especially in the economy. That's what drives me really crazy is people thinking, well, you know, the president can just do this with unemployment, do this with, uh, right. with the With The president,
0: once he once he or she takes power, he usually turns around and says, I can't do all this for you. Right. Um, I don't know what you guys – oh, I, then, know I, I know I told you during the last 18 exactly. months of the campaign. And then blame I the predecessor, which is I, – Although I, I was listening to What Can the President Do That episode that you replayed. And I think you sort of preface it by saying this might give you some comfort. Um, I mean, one thing that struck me about that episode was it seemed to be set up, a lot of folks saying there's limits to what the president could do. We can do this, but not that. And and he can be a figurehead in international affairs that matters. To me, it all sort of was predicated on the idea that 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 president would be from a sort of standard spectrum of of right to left. It seems like we have a real outlier here.
1: Yeah. Although, um, you know, it's what's interesting about watching an outlier and watching someone to whom – I won't say to whom the rules don't apply, but someone who's decided that the rules are kind of ridiculous. So I have no idea. I mean, I think it's – honestly, I think it's going to be pretty exciting times. But I will say this – I did a follow-up episode. So that episode I originally put out probably five or six years ago. It's something I've thought about a lot and and have updated through the years. But then very recently, I put out a piece. with. It was an interview with a a really wonderful legal scholar um, at the University of Chicago named Eric Posner, who happens to be the son of Richard Posner, who's a really brilliant thinker and writer. And Eric, who's pretty brilliant himself, um, wrote a piece in Daedalus um, arguing that Uh, The presidency is basically just shy of a dictatorship, the way that um, presidents have over the centuries and recent decades especially just kind of amassed leverage in a number of ways, including the fact that Congress is kind of underpowered, undermanned, and kind of delegates a lot of stuff that they're not capable of doing to the executive branch. And it adds up to this um, situation whereby the presidency is – if one if you're the president you want to make it something close to a dictatorship in certain realms but then he makes a really interesting argument it gets a little nuanced that the president is constrained almost not at all by the constitution that's you know passé not so much by congress but actually by a few other things his or her own party the nation you know the populace and um, and there might be some other constraints but It will be interesting. You know, when I talked to Eric Posner, this episode was called something like, Has the U.S. Presidency Become a Dictatorship?, Uh which sounded really extreme to a lot of people when we put it out a couple months ago. It was interesting that Posner really engaged with the uh, possibility of a Trump presidency, which very few people at that time were willing to. Right. And so I'm really glad because he said some things. Yeah, if, if, if Donald Trump really believes this about immigrants, he really can do this. And he talked about, you know, obviously, President Obama and the last several presidents have, have executed a ton of executive actions. Um, but Obama's, he argued, were more kind of legally sophisticated and powerful.
0: You mentioned earlier you, you, you think predictions are, are sort of a, a fool's game uh, and you thought people don't understand probability. Seems like you were edging your way towards a media critique. I mean, a lot of people have said, "Oh, the media's flawed in, in the following ways. They've let us down the election in many ways." Do you think that that the Nate Silvers of the world and the Upshots of the world shouldn't have been putting up those charts saying there's a ninety five or seventy five or sixty five percent chance of a well Nate a on five thirty
1: eight, if I recall correctly, as of election day, I think he had uh, Clinton's chances at about sixty nine point yep, something percent, right? Yeah. right? He so, got a lot of grief
0: for it, so it was too right. negative.
1: Well, what's interesting is, look, you can give uh, – especially the more enumerate you are, the more angry you can get at any probabilistic sure. assertion because it's not certainty. It's, it's meant to be a probability. So if I wanted to defend Nate, I could say, hey, 69.3 was a whole lot better than – the upshot had 80-something I think right. for Hillary the night before um, and I'm sure most of the other models were looking like you know almost 100 percent. Certainly the punditocracy, there was – you couldn't find anyone yeah. to go on any media that said that Trump, Trump had a chance much and less by, – by the,
0: by the way, this is – I mean it's changed over – like two election cycles ago, you said, well, the, the word on the street is X and Y and Z and, and, yeah. and it would have been spun a lot. And now I think because of Nate Silver and what he did four years ago, and says, well, those are the numbers. Yeah. Those so what numbers. Nate,
1: does, Nate is a super smart guy and I like him a lot. What he does is, in fact, not that hard and not that magical. He takes good data and some not so good data but weights the good data heavier. And basically, if the more data you have, the better a prediction you can make. So look, we're in New York City. It's November. It's cold now we could have told you that it will be colder now than it was in july almost without exception because we have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of data that happens to be cyclicals right yep. so it's not like you can't predict anything ever of course you can the thing about nate is when when people started railing at him afterwards you're saying hey you're the wizard first of all He's still taking heat for saying way back last year that Trump had right. you know, essentially zero chance. So he made a mistake, and he copped to it, and what are you going to do? You know, That's what you get for predicting. You're going to be wrong. Um, but then people went after him for saying, hey, you were saying Clinton was going to win. He was saying, no, I was saying it was a 69-point-whatever-percent chance. But then I saw one tweet that he wrote that I, I if I had been – Hanging out with him, I always said, no, don't send that, that one because send. that's planned. That's, you're making their mistake. His one was – it was something to the effect that – I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. It was something like if I'm a seismologist and I predict uh, a 69.8% chance of no earthquake and there's an earthquake, what are you going to say? Come on. It was an earthquake. The problem with that is that's a horrible yeah. – as a thinker and as a writer, that's a really bad parallel. The tweet election, that struck me that he sent is he
0: said, well, the data that would have guided you to a correct answer in 2012 – things like uh, internal polling and listed as other metrics, didn't turn out to be useful in 2016. And the things that would have predicted the correct answer in 2016, including social media, crowd sizes, would have got the wrong answer in 2012. And I'm sure he's not just saying, hey, what are you going to do? Because it's his job to figure sure. this stuff out. But to me, that was really striking yeah. that things could change that, that radically.
1: Yeah. And it just kind of, um, I mean, it, this is, look, you can look at predictions throughout history and they're bad. But then after the people make their bad predictions, they always have an ex post story to explain, well, I was actually right. I'm actually very smart. The reason my prediction didn't come true is because, well, things were different. Uh-huh. Well, of course things are different. That's what the future is. So Nate saying that you know an earthquake could have happened, an earthquake and an election are, a little, are obviously quite different in that one is a binary event. You've got two choices. There's a red choice and a blue choice, and that's it. So Any random earthquake is way, 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 way less likely than the underdog winning in a two-party election. And that, in his response, you know, that was a sloppy response. He's really good, though. Let
0: me ask you about a podcast you just aired a couple weeks ago. It's about trust. And one of the big ideas there is that trust between people and sort of throughout a society. Social trust. Social trust. Incredibly important. And what you see happening is that countries that that have heterogeneous population tend to have lower social trust. You have high social trust in in, in countries like Norway and, and Sweden. The US has been getting more and more diverse over time. Right. Left me with an unsettled yeah. uh, perspective because you seem to it, – you, if you're a traditional uh, sort of right-thinking liberal like me, you celebrate diversity. It's hooray. It's great for the country. And, and you seem to be suggesting that's going to cause real problems for us in terms of keeping the, the, the fabric of the country together.
1: Well, you know, social trust in this country has is, is been low, relatively low since the 1960s. And there's a lot of explaining, a lot of potential explainers. Television was thought to be one. You know, it kind of kept people – inside in, inside their homes, inside their own minds and less interaction and so on. And it decreased all kinds of civic participation. You know, The famous book Bowling Alone right. by Bob Putnam kind of described this world where people were not doing things communally the way they used to. But you know, so there are a number of interesting things here. As you said, social trust tends to be higher among a group that it's pretty homogenous. That said, nobody's making the argument except for maybe some isolationists from every camp and I'm sure there are isolations in every camp, who say, you know what, I don't want to be around anyone who isn't just like me. And that's, there's always been that, and there will always be that. And I don't think it's, up, it's for me or you to say you know, people shouldn't have those feelings. Some people are really only comfortable yeah. in a small whatever. But all the smart money, at least, and I think most of, as you put it, the kind of right-thinking people agree that diversity is not only a right, I have the right to go somewhere, even if I'm not like everybody else, but it's also a boon, a strength. So economically, certainly, that's the Right, and
0: that's, again, sort of the orthodoxy now of like, you know, if you read the Financial Times or The Economist, or or if you're sort of participating in the information economy, it's whether you think about it or not, that's sort of built into your worldview. And it seems like one of the takes on the election is people saying, whoa, 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 actually, that doesn't work for a lot of people. And we're so this is a repudiation of that. And we're going to actually close our borders. And maybe we're going to push people out who don't look like us. Or, yeah, you know, maybe there won't be any overt racism, but it's better if we're, yeah, we're, we're hard all the same. It's
1: always hard for me. You know, I'm not a, obviously not a sociologist. I'm not an any kind of ologist, um, but I, I know a lot. Of them. Yeah. And uh, I always think that that Kind of response that kind of what we think of as xenophobic or just fearful or or racist or bigoted or whatever it is anti blank is usually more of a symptom than a cause of behavior. I think it's the response of people who feel unhappy or un you know they they can't get traction or especially and this is something we learned from Kahneman and Tversky loss aversion you know we. We tend to put more weight on loss than we do on a commensurate size of gain. And you see that. In, if, I, if I have a station in life, also, the other thing is, even though we think of ourselves as absolute animals, like if you ask me, what, how many units of X would it take for you to be happy, units right. of dollars, food, units of happiness, whatever, and I say the number and you give it to me, I'll be very happy until I find out that my next door neighbor has two X and then I'm miserable. So we think we're absolute animals, but really we're relative animals. And that's a big problem. There are a lot of things about being human that makes it really hard to, you know, kind of get along. But here's the thing that I'm thinking about your question in terms of social trust in this country. Maybe this is just optimism. I don't think that there's this massive widespread zeal to pull back and to disassemble our population. What I do think, however... Is that um, when people are feeling anxious about a number of things, uh, they look for something that they think will make them feel. Yeah, that doesn't
0: reassure me at all because (laughs) this is this is one of the takes. Well, they they people might have voted for a racist candidate who had racist policies, but they're not racist. It's a symptom. They're they're economically insecure or, or or they have some other issue and and they're willing to look past the xenophobia or racism. Yeah, I th- maybe I think, you're right. You know, you
1: know, but the thing that struck me is the day that Trump went to the White House to meet with Obama, it was an interesting day because everyone was expecting a short meeting. It turned out to be a long meeting. Yeah. And then they had a presser, not quite a presser, but they had a little conversation in the Oval, I guess, um, afterwards, which was more interesting, I think, than most Just people thought. the image of thought. that was so striking. The image was striking. You know, Trump's kind of seeming humility and his deference. Um, yeah. Obama's, you know, Obama... I just happen to think is a, a very uh you know he 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 carries off situations very very well for someone, you know, he's just he's just good at that kind of thing and he was good in that moment and obviously he was very unhappy about Trump winning but he he didn't show it to his credit. But here was the thing that I thought was most bizarre. They said or one of them said so I don't remember which one said this is the first time we've met. And I thought, "Wait a minute." Donald Trump, who's about as visible and high profile a kind of person as exists on the planet and has been running for president for the past, like, 15 years, really. And President Obama, they never sat down. And I thought, you know, had that happened, and had that happened among every group of people or individuals who kind of find themselves cowering behind a wall or putting up a wall to keep somebody out, I think you immediately melt about 50% of the aggression and garbage and that, I think, is what I learned from that episode we did on social trust. I think it was called Trust Me. It's about when you create opportunities for people to spend time with others who have very different everything from them. Like, I'll, I'll tell you, when I worked at the New York Times, I always felt really fish out of water because I wasn't from an upper middle class, suburban or urban Ivy League. Background by a long shot, which most of my peers were. I grew up a poor kid on a farm in upstate New York from this weird family that had been Catholic and we went Jewish. Appalachian
0: State went University. Went to Appalachian
1: State University. I had a military. Is, I think you were the
0: only person at times who probably who
1: had a degree guessing, from there. I'm guessing that's the case. Yeah, you know, I grew up. My oldest brother, my father was World War II. My oldest brother was military, and so we were a very religious family. So you know, I, I moved to New York. I'm I, most people would look at me as a regular kind of upper west side. You look and you know, fit the
0: part of your upper, upper yeah, west side New York.
1: Right. But my life experience has been around a lot of people who are very different. And that doesn't mean that I carry all that experience with me all the time, but I feel like it's been a big benefit to me having been exposed to a lot um, people who think very, very, very differently than, let's say, the standard mindset of the times. And I think it's that's what I think. So when we talk about diversity... I think it's nuts. First of all, when we talk about race in this country, we usually mean black and white, which is nuts. There's a lot about race beyond black and white, and when we talk about diversity, there's a lot about diversity that goes beyond race and gender. There's all different kinds of um, people's feelings and affiliations with religion and with the military and with the kind of communities they have, and they're, they're all you know it's a it's a spectrum that we're really good in the media, really good at reducing to an idiotically narrow spectrum and i think that's um a problem
0: i agree i was just i was going to choose <laughs> my words carefully and then i realized it's fine it's my no podcast. you can insult I can, me I, I love yeah yeah you, you're a white guy i can insult you mm. i'll think about how to insult you correctly we're going to hear from our sponsors <laughs> who so i would never insult we'll be back in a second sofi is a new kind of finance company if you've worked hard to get the career you want sofi is here to offer you easy savings on the student loans that helped you get here SoFi refinances federal and private student loans, and when it does that, its members save an average of $316 a month. Student loan refinancing is when you get a lower interest rate on a new loan and you use it to pay off the existing student loan. And with SoFi, there's never any origination fee or prepayment penalties on that new loan. So if you're looking to pay off student debt faster or get a lower monthly payment, or maybe even both, SoFi offers a range of options so you can focus less on debt and more on the future. Find your rate at SOFI.com. That's SOFI.com terms and conditions apply at sofi.com slash legal. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company everyone can afford. With a Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs, which I've learned are actually GIFs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same content you'd find on more expensive sites, it's just way cheaper. Subscribers get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. So if you're working on a personal project, commercial project, you pay zero royalties, you keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off, the usual price tag for my listeners only. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's videoblocks.com recode for this exclusive offer. And finally, we'd like to thank Lenovo for supporting this podcast. The cloud is no longer just a place where you back up your phone. Businesses need the cloud to expand their computing power. And thanks to Lenovo Cloud data services, they can increase or decrease server capacity and horsepower on demand. That's a big deal because it means no more rooms full of servers. But your team can still test applications and stage products just like they do today without the need for expensive hardware. Lenovo servers are number one in reliability and performance because this kind of flexibility doesn't mean squat if the service isn't there when you need it. Lenovo will even help you with your legacy and proprietary vendors to create a smooth transition. Learn how Lenovo is transforming the data center at Lenovo.com datacenter We're back here with Stephen Dubner. I was trying to figure out the right way to insult his ethnicity and I, I'm not going to do it. But, you're a white, but you, your I'm, history is interesting, right? So so you were explaining that you you got to the New York Times, but you didn't get there at the traditional path. How did you break into big-time journalism? Because at one point, you were an editor at the Times Magazine, right? I was, yeah. And that, at yep. one point, that was the thing that I thought was the best job Yeah, ever. me – oh, believe and, me, me too. And still is today, one of the best magazines yeah. ever. How do, you, how do you break into that world, especially if you do not come – from an Ivy League education if you don't have that sort of, that funnel that gets a lot of people into the into a place like the Times?
1: Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people talk about when they get to a position that they hadn't envisioned they would ever get to, which was the case for me, that you, you never stop feeling like an imposter. And uh, I think imposter was not quite the right word for me. I I just felt like, uh, you know, I felt like not quite, I was going to say one of the guys in, on the Oakland days and Michael Lewis's Moneyball, not, not quite like an undervalued I didn't feel under, like an undervalued. I actually felt maybe overvalued. But um, when you don't think that you're all that in any realm, I think you just – it's not about you know, the cliche of working harder, although I do work hard. It's about. Uh, I've already been going about. I got up at about three o'clock this no. morning to write because I had something to write, and I do that pretty routinely. You um, wake up, three, five at five, I get five. I would prefer, but today I had something—a uh, Freakonomics radio episode that needed a lot more. The script needed a lot of work, and uh, you set an alarm for three. or You popped up at
0: three. I you had set an, an alarm idea. for three. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, so I do work hard, but it's not that, and I don't mean to brag. Although I, I realize I just did the old, <laughs> the old brag, but um, it's humble brag. It? it wasn't even a humble brag. It was just a strike. <laughs> <laughs> not even good enough to do a humble brag. But um, I think that when you feel like you don't necessarily have the pedigree, then you constantly self-assess and you constantly look for how to improve kind of tactically and technically and strategically. So this is one of the reasons why I really love the work of this guy, Anders Erickson, this psychologist who's written a book called Peak, the research of which was turned into what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in in Outliers is the 10,000-hour rule. It's about the notion that a lot of us work hard and a lot of us, quote, practice a lot, but deliberate practice is a different thing. Deliberate practice means constantly trying to get feedback on how you're doing what you're doing, constantly picking apart the specifics of how you're trying to do something. It means um, relying on outside feedback as well and focusing much more on your... Technique or your work than the outcome, so it's very easy to get distracted by like I worked hard on this book or whatever, and people like it. Thus, liked I should, it. yeah, yeah, or people, or you know, most of my friends in New York are writers, and most of them are smarter than me. Most of them are better educated than I am, etc. But my books have, for whatever reason, been more popular. Now, I never look at that as being a product of anything other than basically pure luck, because. If you start to measure your self-worth on the outcome of the thing, I think you just kind of coast. And I'm way too insecure to want to coast.
0: And, I mean, one of the things about – I'm going to probably butcher it a bit. But one of the things I remember about uh, the Gladwell version of the 10,000 hours was it's not just that you practice for 10,000 hours or even that you practice with deliberate intent. is that you are in an environment and a place and a structure that allows you to take advantage of that. Yeah, Um,
1: Malcolm's argument, it's really interesting. So – this guy, Anders Erickson, he was a, a research psychologist at Florida State, and he's done tons of work with tons of academics about what's called deliberate practice. That camp didn't love Malcolm's interpretations, not surprisingly. Because he the had academics. a
0: structural argument. Who's saying it's not just, it's not it, just it, work hard and everything's going to pan out for you. That was
1: part of it. That was part of it. But Malcolm's argument that I found so interesting, and I, you know, I've known Malcolm a long time and I've read him a long time. I never really thought about it. Till recently when someone, I think one of his former editors pointed out to me that Malcolm's a very political person, but it was subtle for a long time. And now it's become less so. And I enjoy it because I kind of do like my politics not hidden.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, but what I was getting to was was how did you break into the Times? Because the Times, I think now is 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 trying hard to now they hire
1: anybody <laughs> they will hire anybody.
0: Um, they're they're actually trying to find people who don't look and talk like yeah. them. They kind of look and talk like I most do. People yeah. who are in the Times, uh, but as an outsider, how did you bra- how did you break in? Uh,
1: just again, luck. So I I know the actual story of how I got referred there, but I'm not allowed to say because it was a, a secret. Uh, someone there, there you refer- go. Someone referred me to someone there. But that someone was not uh, supposed to refer me because that someone was friends with the someone who was running the shop where I was at the time. So it could have been seen as a poaching. So I've been okay. sworn to secrecy. But there was already
0: some secret handshakes involved. We can, so we can skip that part.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I Basically, I'd been... Um, I, so I was a musician, always a writer. I played with a rock band. We got a record contract, moved to New York. I decided to quit. Decided that being a rock star, as fun as it looked, was not going to be my life. Quit... Went to graduate school. Oh, you gotta, to, you gotta say the name of the band. Uh, the, the band was called The Right Profile, which was named for a song uh, by The Clash on London Calling. Which is, um, which is
0: the best Clash
1: album. Uh, it is the best Clash album, and The Clash is one of the best rock and roll band. Agreed.
0: You know. We are and in then, um,
1: Went to grad school for fiction writing, because I thought I wanted to teach college and write novels. I taught college at Columbia for a year as part of my program. I decided I did not want to teach college. And then I got a job at New York Magazine. Was there four years, and then was uh, then went over was was um, offered a job at the New York Times. So Magazine. the standard path, yeah, pretty standard, standard path, path rock really. Rock band, New York Magazine, exactly right. New York Times. Youngest of eight, Jewish, Catholic, rock band. Path. Let's let's yep. talk about
0: what what you're doing now. I think one of the interesting things is is you guys started with a book. What 2005
1: ish? Yes. Uh, there's been what four books since? Uh, yes, three real. Then one was a compilation of blog writings.
0: And it's now a brand. And as we were discussing at the beginning of the podcast, there there are many different things uh, emanating from it. Steve Lovett's still doing research, right?
1: Yeah, you know he's he's changed. You know we've both changed a lot, so we're very good friends. I'm happy to say, good collaborators. Right now, we're not actively working on a book together because we really have used up his research. But he is now working on something. It's not quite a skein of research as it is a kind of way to look at economics generally, that if it works, we will do another book. So fingers are crossed. So you write the first
0: book, you're not thinking it's going to sell millions Correct. of copies. Then it does. And then do you guys actively think, all right, we're smart guys. We should think about how we can do something with this other than going, wow, we had a hit book. That's amazing.
1: Nah, we we were both in that realm, very unambitious. I think we both felt like we got way luckier than we deserved. You, you get a lottery ticket. It's yeah, a winning exactly, lottery ticket. Exactly. You go woohoo, and right. then you think you're done. And then the publisher immediately said, "Write another one next year." You know, and we said, "Well, it would be terrible because you know, the first book took basically 15 years worth of Steve Levitt's research done with many many collaborators that took thousands of person hours, maybe right. tens of the thousands." Just give me more. You say, "Well, that's exactly you did it." But that's the way publishing is. Right. It's the way Hollywood is. It's the way everything is. But if um, it's an
0: Avengers movie, you can make a new Avengers movie because you make up some stupid plot true, about a bunch true. of True. um
1: So we ended up doing a second book, Super Freakonomics, which was, um, I think it was pretty good. And it took us five years or four. Yeah, I think it took us five years. Um, and we felt good about that. And that one did pretty well. Then we... Waited another, I think, four or five years before we put out a third one, which was that. By then, we wanted to do something quite different. That one was called Think Like a Freak, which was a little bit more of a strategic, a little bit more teachy. And I think, you know, I, yeah, I really like all the books we've done. We haven't yet written a book that we didn't like. So that's uh. So, so you're producing more books,
0: but then at some point you say, all right, this is, this could be a blog where you're sort of. No, the applying. blog began
1: before the first book was out either. Oh, really? Yeah. Just, you know, it's 2005, gotta have a website. Um, and then it was actually really fun to have a blog when you publish a book that then blows up because people are wanting to continue the conversation, and we had a place to do it. That's my least favorite thing about books. You work four years in a room, you put it out, and it's dead. Right? It doesn't change. How do you keep that conversation going? So the blog was version one of keeping the conversation going, and that was great for like four or five years when blogs were a central thing. Then Facebook began to aggregate and blogs changed and so on and then our podcast free radio podcast became the second way to keep the conversation but, but going but for a
0: while you were you, the, the free economics blog was part of the times it you was. guys owned it and the times was trying to figure out do we make people pay to read the times is it free yeah. they went back and forth and during that time you were kind of like the star one of the stars of the website and you were sort of the the, the precursor of Nate Silver right. bringing 538 there and so at one point, you guys said, we're leaving because we're going to go create a multimedia thing. Well, well,
1: it coincided with the fact that they were going to the paywall, and we had not a lot of like desire. 2010-ish. to 2010-ish. Uh, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't have a lot of desire to be behind a paywall. But their business model was also not working as well. They were run. I mean, they were hemorrhaging money. Um, and right. It this just is not people
0: were publishing stories about the fact that they were going to be bankrupt and they had to borrow money from yeah. Carlos Slim. And so it wasn't that you guys – had big designs to create a multimedia empire you just wanted to get out from well, a
1: it? Well, it was also a little bit complicated. That By then, I had started this podcast, which Levitt was nice enough to once in a while make an appearance, but this was just, the podcast was just something that I thought would be fun to do. I'd started the podcast, which had a web, so there was a Freakonomics radio website. Then uh, there'd been this movie that we kind of went along with but didn't make, so there was a website for that. You don't
0: love this movie. I watched
1: it last I night. I not mind. It's, no, it's entertaining. You know, I like it fine. I don't think it made us look, Idiotic. There were a lot of things that, as the writer, you're saying, like, well, they got that wrong, they got that wrong. And we told them, and we had what they called some kind of approval, but they just laughed at us. You don't
0: have that kind of approval.
1: Exactly. It's approval in, in, uh, in theory only. Yeah. But part of the reason of taking the blog back from the New York Times was I just wanted to have a website, Freakonomics.com, where all our stuff was. We never looked at that. We never look at most things as, like, profit centers. Um, and that's been kind of part of the fun of what I and we have been doing for the past 10, 12 years is like, you do what you want to do. And fortunately, if there's some things that make enough money to keep things going, great. But then, uh, you know, you, you just follow what you're kind of into. And sometimes you pay a lot of money to do it. Like this podcast that I just started, tell me something I don't know. I'm, I self-funded it. Every penny really? out of pocket. Yes, sir.
0: But not for giggles. This is, it's, it's a cool podcast. It's, uh, it's a game show. It is a game show, super, number one on iTunes. Super straight, super, super for great conceit. Yeah. Uh, you bring in people off the street. We it do. There's a celebrity panel. You start, they stump the panel. It's great, super accessible. Um, and you and, and but you self funded that because you think that is going to be a business. You think that's going
1: to. make I don't money know. You. You don't, Here's what I knew. You're hoping it does. Sure. I mean, I would rather succeed than fail. Uh-huh. But what I did know is that now that I've written a bunch of things in different formats and had a bunch of different partnerships over the years. I know that as a writer and even though the the new show is a, a live journalism game show event it's still written you know there's still a concept and a theme and we you know we kind of we kind of curate the whole thing as a writer there's nothing more important to me than like owning and controlling every single second and that means that um if I were to go with a partner who wants to have it's one of the reasons I've never done TV. TV is like the one thing I haven't done a lot, like our own show. And we've gotten close. And then every time you get There's to the 11th lots hour. lots of cooks. Oh, man. A lot of cooks nature. who – and they control the temperature and they control what tools you can use. And they say, here, come on out and no." say Seems like thing. you should have a Netflix show right now. Because you know,
0: I don't know if it's going to be sustainable, but so supposedly right now is Netflix or Amazon compete to write you right. dumber and dumber checks and say, do whatever <laughs> you want, um, and you know at least for a season or two.
1: I think if we were ever going to do something, it would have to be for someone where I would make a show and then license or sell it as opposed to have an investing partner. But TV is obviously more expensive than podcasts. Pod, the new podcast, I could afford to produce it myself. The other thing about TV is um, I like radio and writing. Because if you want to be applauded once in a while, you can get a little bit, but you're not recognized. And I think that wanting to be recognized— You like being a generic Upper West Side Zabars. I do. I do. It's one of the reasons I didn't want to be a rock star is I thought, you know, uh, as we were getting closer to, you know, we got our record deal and started to hang out with some bands who were—some were a little successful— Uh, we, we played a bunch in the beginning with REM and they were getting really big. And then I, I got to meet Bruce Springsteen, who I really, really, really liked and admired. And this was right when he was exploding. And he was really one of the big reasons that convinced me to quit rock and roll, even though he didn't know he said anything that, that led to that. But he basically was at this point, this was born in the USA, which was a long time ago. He said that, you know, if I had known what it would really be like to be this famous, I'd really rethink it.
0: This is one of those rock star, pop star, movie star cliches that, that never resonates because if you're a regular person, you go, that's, that's entirely impossible. You have limousines and mansions and, and whenever you want to be famous, you can step out from the limousine well, or the mansion. Yeah, but think about what you're describing
1: there. Limousines, fine. Nice car, great. Mansion, nice house, great. Yeah. So What you're talking about now is just money. Fame, there's money, there's power, right. and there's fame. Money, I'm fine with power. I'm fine with fame. Is costly. That's what people don't get. Yeah, it's again. It's, I
0: think it's hard for uh, just about anybody to sort of process that and go, well, what's the pro-? especially by especially now since we are in a world where not only does everyone want to be famous, but many people can become famous. I don't famous. think they
1: want to be famous. I think they want to be admired and adored and petted. They want recognition. And loved. Right. All right. right. But the, you might you might say I was talking not to someone who's said, recognition. Oh, one
0: of our video stars, our, our YouTube or Buzzfeed or whatever the, the the medium was." This person can no longer buy groceries. Right. Um, it turns and they're by the way, they're not rich. They just are famous enough that they get hassled when That's they go the buy worst groceries, combination. and we have to go <laughs> buy groceries for them. Um, but I think most people who are fiddling with their Facebook or their Snapchat think, "I would like to have that problem."
1: I think so because it's very easy to conflate the good things about being recognized, like the money and the power, and and yes. Um, being recognized and, like I said, loved and applauded and adored—I get all that. Everybody wants that. Being famous, I think, is much more costly than beneficial. I think very few people do a cost-benefit analysis on fame.
0: Should we end the podcast there? Or do you have do you have one great nugget of like knowledge? A joke? Like I should have some tumbler. Uh, people are going to be listening to this. They'll be after post Thanksgiving into the Christmas season. Is there something something you can impart with them that's going to help them, help them make it through the end of the year?
1: I will tell you. Uh, so the short answer is no, I don't have any wisdom <laughs> like that. But I'll tell you the one, Thanksgiving... So I love this time of year because uh, I grew up in a family where the holidays were a big, big deal. And, uh, and then they became bittersweet because my dad died when I was a kid right before Christmas. Then my mom died when I was about 30 before Holo- uh, Thanksgiving. But then the family, we spent Thanksgiving together. So I think of Thanksgiving especially as a real um, family holiday. And I think about this world of like... I mentioned before, absolute versus relative. We all think we, we'd be happy if we got X, and we find out that someone we know has double X, and we get really um, frustrated. My mom, who was not like a philosophical person at all, she was extremely practical. She was raising eight kids on basically zero dollars, growing all our own food, and making our own clothes and so on. But she had this one thing she said. It wasn't like she said it all the time, and she said it once, but I always remembered it. She said, "Enough is as good as a feast." And it's what I've always lived by. Um, Find your enough and you won't be so uh, greedy and hungry. That is the best podcast close (laughs) we've had to date. Thank you very much, Stephen.
0: My pleasure, Peter. Thanks. This is great. Thanks again for coming. Thanks to you guys for listening to this. This is one of the ones I've enjoyed the most, I think, at the end of the podcast. Uh, so, if you like that, there's in a full year's worth of this stuff. You can go listen to that. You can listen to the podcast my colleague Kara Swisher makes. You can listen to the one Lauren Good makes. I think I'm on that one this week. Not sure about the time travel. Um, they're all available on Recode, iTunes, Spotify. You know how to find things because you listen to podcasts. Thanks to our awesome sponsors, Mac Weldon. Videoblocks and Lenovo, thanks to Digital Media, Real Company, Funny Name. They are the ones distributing this to you. And thanks again to you guys. We will see you next week.